Hello and welcome, fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. When David Bowie died earlier this year at the age of 69, he left behind one of the most diverse, interesting, and impressive bodies of work in the history of popular music. In his lifetime, the English musician released 27 studio albums, 6 extended plays, and 121 singles. When considering this vast discography, it seems it would take a lifetime to sort through, analyze, and assess the critical value and cultural importance of each and every David Bowie song. But that's exactly the intention of my guest today. For the past seven years, Chris O'Leary has been writing thoughtful, often revelatory, and always interesting articles about each and every David Bowie song in a blog called Pushing Ahead of the Dame. It was named one of Time Magazine's best blogs of 2011. In 2015, O'Leary's essays on David Bowie's early years were collected, edited, and published in a fascinating and well-received book called Rebel Rebel, detailing the Bowie discography up to 1976. Chris is currently hard at work on the second volume of this project, dealing with each Bowie song from 1977 up to his swan song, Black Star, released earlier this year. Like many rock fans around the world, I was heartbroken when I woke up one morning in January to discover that David Bowie was gone. I wanted to speak to Chris O'Leary because there's no one else I could think of to help me better understand Bowie's discography, humor, his myriad interests, the impact of drugs on his work, the various characters he played on stage, and his occasionally bizarre creative process. In today's episode of Travels in Music, Chris and I discuss all of these themes and more, as well as the surprising origins of his incredibly ambitious Bowie writing project. So as we continue to mourn the loss of one of the most important artists of the past century, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with David Bowie expert and author, Chris O'Leary. So we're, we're chatting today, and in, in late January 2016, it's been two or three weeks, I guess, since since David Bowie's death. I, I don't know about you, but but it's sort of his passing took me by surprise. I, I, I didn't really realize what his art meant to me until I woke up to the news that he was gone. And I, I've heard several other people, friends and stuff, say, say the same. Are you at all surprised by the scale of of the grief surrounding Bowie's death? Um, a little bit, but I think it's understandable given that it coincided basically with the release of, of the album. So I think the shock was kind of fueled by the fact that he was kind of considered almost a, a contemporary artist releasing a new album. Then two days later, he's gone. I do wonder if it had been, if it would, would have been a little more muted if he had never put out an album since, his semi-retirement in the early 2000s. I think it would have been great sadness and shock, but I think it was just, um, it ballooned because of he was such a presence in in culture for the last two to three years since he came back. 
What was your initial impression of Black Star, his last album, and how has that changed over the past month? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I've been trying to keep in mind what my initial thoughts were because obviously his death changes changes the the nature of how you receive the album, um, maybe to its detriment. And I think you know, as as time goes on, maybe people should just try to approach the album not as some kind of grand statement about his death, even though that's in there. Even though I think he he knew it could have been his last album, and he's almost playing with the idea. But when I initially heard it, I was more excited about what it meant for his future. I thought it was him sort of finally shaking off the need to make sort of commercial records or quote-unquote David Bowie albums and do something he'd always wanted to do, which is sort of a Scott Walker-esque, um, odder, maybe more artier album for the first time since the mid-90s when he did an album called Outside. Um, and it felt like that. It felt like somebody with nothing left to prove, just having a lot of fun and really exploring um, new sounds in a way that many people of his generation don't anymore. For my money, it's his best album since, I mean, maybe Let's Dance or something like that. Like, I, I really like it. it. It's very, very lively. And I really it's it's so sad that he's gone, you know, simply for the fact that I think he really found some great collaborators in those musicians. It, it's a great album. Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, I've, I've listened to it, you know, every couple of days. And I remember the one that came out before uh, in 2013, the next day. Um, I liked, but I didn't go back to it that much. It felt like it was a little overstuffed with songs and some of it didn't hold together. But this one, I think, I really enjoy listening to. And I think it's going to hold up as being, I think, yeah, his best, his best album in 20, 30 years. So you, you write a blog called Pushing Head of the Dame that is... Um, Bowie focused. You've written a book called Rebel Rebel, which examines um, every Bowie song, I guess, over the first 12 years of his career. Why Why Bowie? What drew you to his music? What drew you to write about him? Um, it, it's, it's funny now, given how much has, has happened with the, how, the, how the blog has ballooned into the book and so forth. It really began almost as an arbitrary decision. Uh, in the 2000s, I had done a blog which was kind of more about music in time, picking specific years and looking at kind of what songs were out then. It was sort of a blues and jazz focused thing. And it was such a, a widespread thing that I wanted to concentrate on a single person's body of work as sort of a contrast, as some new thing to write about. And I wanted somebody who would, was active for a few decades and who was interesting. And uh, I chose Bowie basically because I didn't know that much about his music pre-Space Oddity. And there's a lot of it. There's a lot of music from the 60s. And I didn't really know his stuff in the late 90s either. So it was more somebody who I knew very much the certain period of work, but not that much for the rest of it. And it was kind of, that's maybe probably the, the main reason I did it. Chose him. That's fascinating. I mean, that's the exact opposite of the answer I was expecting in some ways. I thought you were going to tell me, oh, I've been obsessed with Bowie for years, and this was no, the culmination no. of my life's work, and that's fascinating. No. So when did, yeah. you, when did you start writing about him? Summer of 2009, it started. Uh, late summer of 2009. And now it's almost over. I just had to do the Black Star songs pretty much at some point, probably in the summer. Why do you think Bowie felt compelled to take on various characters throughout his career, particularly in the 1970s, people like Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke? Why do you think he kept reinventing himself like that? He, I think he was a very, very bright guy who got bored very easily. And I think 
the idea of being stuck in a in particular role really kind of bothered him. He didn't want to be a folk singer his whole life. He didn't want to be a rock star, you know, in in platform shoes and, and bright orange hair his whole life. I think he kind of also was very commercially minded in some ways and knew that he knew the life cycle of pop. And he knew if he was stuck too long in glam, he was going to be an old, old hat. If he stuck too long in, you know, soul quote music in the mid seventies, he, he risked being tarred as a disco artist or something. So he kind of kept doing that part sort of as self-preservation, but I think also as a way to just keep himself interested in music, because there are times he really seems to be on the edge of just getting out of music altogether. He wants to be a painter. He wants to write screenplays and direct uh, and be an actor. And so I think part of it was just his, his need to make himself committed to music by kind of reinventing himself. Which, which of those characters do you find most interesting or which, which, which uh, period I should say, um, do you find most interesting? Well, I guess in terms of it's different for like, whether I like the music most or not, um, in terms of the character, um, the one that I've, because I'm, I'm doing it now as my revisions for my, the next book, um, the sort of, the sort of character he's playing in the eighties is really interesting. This, his idea of a global pop entertainer, which he'll, you know, which is a character in a way, it's another version of Ziggy Stardust in a way, the let's dance Bowie, this kind of global pop figure. It's kind of interesting. So we're talking about like the, the, uh, Sorry, I sorry to interrupt. We're talking about the sort of 1985 Live Aid Bowie, that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like in a way, that's that's another character. He's sort of that's his, you know, sort of embodiment of global MTV pop stardom. He's playing this kind of thing, and I think that's interesting in a way because he's he's still acting, and at some point he gets sick of that role, and he he winds up in a band playing sort of rather <laughs> aggressive rock music in a way to kill off that character. Um, so that's kind of interesting just from a perspective, but also, you know, the, the thin white Duke period, obviously, because he's in such great personal distress and he's doing such bizarre things with his life. You can't help but be fascinated by that period, which is like the 75 and 76. What role did drugs play in, in his music, particularly in the 1970s? Um, I think someone, someone wrote, somewhere and one of the, one of the you know dozens of great retrospectives about Bowie um that cocaine was kind of an ideal drug for him that was his basically his drug of choice he never really did anything else besides that besides that and, and drink i believe um because it was cocaine was just kind of a way to um he already was obsessed with so many things just to kind of a way just to kind of fuel it even more and I, and and drive him through these kind of really grueling recording sessions when he made station to station young Americans, which also, which often involved staying up all night, constantly recutting vocals, constantly trying to drive his musicians more and more and more into it. And so I think that kind of it's, he's one of the few people who I think drugs actually fueled his creativity in a way. Um, obviously it lasted for a couple of years and then he realized he was cracking up and he had to, and had to stop. But unlike, you know, people who's, who couldn't produce anything for years because they were strung out on heroin. Bowie kind of in a very, you know, fitting way chooses the drug that makes him hyper productive and, and almost um, even more driven to create things. You said earlier that he was obsessed with so many things. Could you expand on that? What do you, what do you mean by that? 
there's like there's just like through lines throughout his life um, of things that he kept coming back to. One was uh, Buddhism and and you know something that he got into pretty heavily in the mid '60s in London, um, befriending some Tibetan exiles. And according to legend, he even thought about joining a Buddhist monastery somewhere in Scotland. I think it was it was just a tall tale, but it kind of is is part of that period, you know, that period. Um, and Buddhist in Buddhist ideas um, resurfaced through his music. There's also an obsession with uh, um, stuff that got him into trouble, which is Aleister Crowley occultism um, tied to speculations about Nazi occult practices, which he would openly talk about his his interest in that. And that's all over things like the song Quicksand and some of Station to Station. Um, and things like uh, essentially is there a God is something that he, he keeps going back to uh, late into his career. Um, the album Heathen is about that um, in some ways and Black Star is there too. And also just, you know, favorite writers and favorite um, sort of scenarios and comedy. Oddly enough, he was a big fan of comedy and there's a lot more humor in his songs than, than you think. Things like, you know, Peter, Peter Cook, uh, the comedian, is kind of in there a lot. And so are sort of some of the great British music hall comedians of the 50s and 60s that he grew up with. That's been a recurring theme, I would say, in a lot of the obituaries and articles published since his passing, is how funny the man was, which, which oh, yeah. surprised me. I mean, you can hear it, you can hear it particularly in the early music, but but a lot of the, a lot of this stuff, there are a lot of dark themes, I think, um, sort of somber tones. But but everyone says he was a really deeply funny guy. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard something leaked after his death was a um, a gag tape he did when he was making the song Absolute Beginners where he's doing these pretty fantastic impressions of Tom Waits and, and Mark Bolin, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop. Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, it's on YouTube. I'm sure it's it's up there. Um, and that's, I think you've heard that over and over again when people talk about the making of records. It's like, yeah, there was a time he sang the whole song in a Dylan impression, or there was a time he sang in this crazy kind of foreign accent. And so you feel like he that's the side of him that maybe got shielded a little bit and maybe that'll come out more if there's more outtakes coming to light after that. I imagine his humor would be a big uh, reason why John Lennon was, was drawn to him uh, aside from yeah. the fact that, that John respected him so much as an artist, but John was known as quite a, quite a funny guy as well. Like to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Absolutely. And I think um, that was part of it. I think just the, John, John Lennon was also a very, very bright and um, easily distracted guy. And so I think Bowie, he recognized a fellow, you know, soul, someone else who was just kind of a constant cut up and constantly talking about things he'd read or seen on television. And, you know, I think the two of them really connected about that. So picking up uh, Bowie's story in his sort of coke-fueled um, mid-70s <laughs> heyday, um, what drew him to Germany in the nineteen in the late nineteen seventies? Um, part of it was he wanted. I mean, it was practical. He wanted. To, he needed to go. He needed to have like a an, an official residency somewhere, at, for tax reasons. He couldn't. He had to get out of England, and he didn't want to be in America given all the stuff he'd gotten up to in in seventy five and seventy six in Los Angeles. So he got a house in. 
a house. I mean, I'm sure it was much bigger than a house in Switzerland as kind of his official place to live. But he wanted to kind of have the bohemian life he never quite had because he was a suburban guy and he lived with his parents until 69 or something. And then he immediately got married and for a couple of years had the sort of a bohemian atmosphere uh, in, in Beckenham, the suburb of, of London. But he kind of really wanted to, to actually do, to pretend he was Christopher Isherwood, um, the writer who, whose Berlin stories he really loved and who he even kind of dresses as in that period. If you compare um, the Christopher Isherwood surrogate character in the movie Cabaret, played by, I think, Michael York, to Bowie's look, they're similar. Bowie's haircut is similar. His clothes are even a little similar. So it's him almost trying to live out this Weimar Germany fantasy, in a way, in a very classically Bowie way of like, I'm going to kind of pretend it's 1930 in Berlin, and I'll, and I'll be there. Do you think his, his interest in um, Nazism played into that at all? I mean, I'm, I'm someone who's fascinated by post-World War II Germany, the, the history there. Yeah. Do you think he was, he was interested in that as well? Is that part of the reason why he decided to relocate to Berlin? I th- yeah, I, I believe so. I think he was absolutely fascinated with the whole period, not just the Nazis, but you know the um, the ex- you know the twenties, uh, the Bauhaus and the Expressionists and, and uh, Fritz Lang movies and everything, the whole package. But obviously, the allure of going to places where you know the Reichstag or something definitely played a part in it. Uh, just sort of almost like a sort of bizarre tourism that kind of drew him there. What what was his his typical creative process like? I mean, every artist is is different. Some artists make it a point to sit down and, and hammer something out every day. Others um, work in spurts when they're creatively inspired. Mm. Did he have a certain creative process, or or was it changing? It changed over time. In the beginning, he really sat down and composed songs top to bottom. Uh, he wrote out full lyrics. And he would demo all the songs, uh, usually on piano or guitar. And then that kind of ends um, in the mid-70s, in part because he starts drying up a little bit, uh, composition-wise, um, due to the constant touring, due to the, the drug use, probably due to other factors. And he kind of alights upon a new way of making music, which is more like, because he was making a film at that period, a bit more like filmmaking, where he is a director with sort of a, a loose storyline. So he'll come into the studio with a couple chord progressions and maybe a title or a few snatches of melody and just like would play them to his band. And he luckily had this wonderful band. And they would kind of build the song up in the studio and he would listen and give them directions and guidance. And then once they had established a sort of great rhythm track, he would then sometimes months later come back and actually write the lyric. Um, and often he would just improvise the lyric uh, in the vocal booth. So it, it becomes like he becomes more and more committed to doing this kind of, not quite chaotic, but a much more improvisatory means of making music to keep it fresher, um, I believe. Is, and, and it ebbs and flows. There are times he goes back to making demos of, of songs. There are times when he goes back to writing out lyrics. But for the most part, he commits more to to chaos methods, whether it's Brian Eno's um, kind of, you know, cards, I forget uh, Ed, but the name of it right now, I'm blanking, or using um, computer programs to generate sort of random lyrics in the 90s. It was called the Verbicizer. 
It was like a, an early program. Oh, where wow. he, yeah, where he would put in newspaper articles and it would kind of just churn up random lines. And then he would kind of use that as like a, as a basis for a, for a stanza. That sounds a lot like, have you seen, uh, there's a program online called New Age Bullshit Generator? Yes, yeah. I mean, I think it was a, it's a thin line. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> it, sometimes that's, that's how you get, if there's a lyric in a Bowie song, you're just like, wait, what's he saying? That's probably because it was, it was generated by some sort of cut-up method. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Stooges fan. Uh, I love Iggy Pop. And I have to ask, Iggy, Iggy and, and David, they, they had some wonderful collaborations. Why do you think, what, what made them such a great team for a little while? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because they, and someone said this, some, some mutual friend, so that they, they both had, they each had what the other wanted. Um, Iggy was, for Bowie, this kind of great example of an American, you know, primitive, kind of pure id monster on stage. Um, that Bowie was like, yeah, very reserved, middle-class Englishman, and for Iggy seemed like this sort of like Natty Bumpo frontier figure come to life, this amazing raw energy. And Iggy saw Bowie as somebody who actually had it, had it together in a way that, you know, well, wow, here's somebody who's has enough money to live in an apartment and not, you know, having to bum on people's, you know, sleep on people's couches. This is a guy who actually has record deals and is respected by critics. So I kind of want what he's doing. Because he's also he's not selling out either. He's not doing phony, middle of the road pop music. He's doing rather avant garde, weird stuff, you know. And so I think the two of them, at their peak, you know, seventy six to seventy seven, um, both really kind of fed each other um, in that way. It's it's kind of funny to hear you describe Bowie as a. I think you called him a nice middle class English lad. I'm, I'm just <laughs> picturing Ziggy Stardust on stage and thinking, yeah, that's that's my image of a nice middle class. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's an act. Yeah, that, that that's like that's like him performing. Whereas I think he thought Iggy just was like that, like could just go on stage with with no preconceived thought and just sort of roll around on stage and scream and then. He would see Iggy the next morning, like reading the newspaper and being rather sedate and just wondering how he, you know, how could you just turn it on and off like that? I think that fascinated him. So I have to ask, if you didn't grow up as a massive uh, David Bowie fan, what kind of music really turned you on? Like, what, what were you listening to in your, in your younger years? Well, Bowie was part of it. I mean, I, I grew up in the South, in, Amer- in the American South, and... Um, I listened to a lot of pop music, which was a great period for pop music, the early, early 80s. But then I had a period where um, I discovered um, punk rock in 1987, basically. And that kind of changed everything. Uh, that's kind of what I listened to. I listened to a lot of what you would call college rock and also a lot of punk rock. Um, and that's kind of my first entry into Bowie was, well, I knew him as an MTV, you know, as a guy on the radio once in a while, but... The Man Who Sold the World was kind of the one album that really seemed to connect with the stuff I was into in 1989. It was, it's a really heavy album and weird and full of, you know, crazy guitars and stuff. So that's, I think that's the first CD I bought of his, and I still have an affection for it. I think that it, it often isn't, uh, isn't recognized enough, Bowie's influence on the, on the punk scene. If you, if you listen to something like Gene Genie, in my view, like, that sounds like a, like a slow down punk song in a lot of ways, in my view. No, yeah. And he was, I mean, 
all of the punk, the major musicians, the you know Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and even Mick Jones, I think, were all started out as Bowie fans. They were all kind of glam rock kids in 72 and 73 who then needed, wanted something else to do and were sick of where music was going by 76. And so punk is sort of an extension of, of glam in some ways. You recently published a, uh, a very interesting piece in Slate uh, about the Bowie song Sound and Vision. And I'll, pu- I'll push, uh, I'll publish, I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, but why, I wanted to ask you more about it. Why is that song such an important part of the Bowie catalog? Um, I think, as what we were talking about earlier, with him kind of driving himself like a, to quote, to quote himself, driving himself like a demon uh, in the mid-70s, um, at some point he burns out, and this is the period he makes the album low. And he's really mentally and spiritually exhausted, physically exhausted. Um, and he's almost wondering, is there anything left? Uh, have I kind of pushed myself to the to the edge too much? And he's kind of just doing this experimental recording session with Brian Eno and his band. And Sound and Vision seems like it's the rebirth of his songwriting in a way. And it's it's and it's sort of a perfect song about making a song, but it's also a song about being depressed and being isolated and not wanting to leave your room. It's kind of all that in one. And it's also very, very beautifully created. It's this perfect little world of a song and it's it's very catchy. And I think it was like a number three single in England. So it's it's kind of everything <laughs> in one. I think it kind of sums up Bowie's uh, various disparate, you know, threads. Yeah, it, it's it's a very beautiful song, but it's very weird too. You know what I mean? There, there's something yes. there's something inaccessible about it. And when I think about Bowie and in terms of his legacy, I think for me it's 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 okay to be weird. You know, that's a good thing because yes. if you look at something like the Beatles, like John Lennon certainly was was weird in a lot of ways, but he was weird in a different way. Like Bowie was really out there. If you look if you look at his what he was doing in the seventies, how far ahead of his time he was the outfits he would wear, the things he would sing about, like he was really, really weird. And I mean that in the best way possible. But I think, yeah. I think, I think that's the, the Bowie legacy. But, but what do you think is, is the, the ultimate David Bowie legacy? Um, and I think you're right. I think um, one thing that was common in all the, all the tributes and all the mem- reminiscences that came out of his death, and some of, there was like a, a lot of this, a slew of just really great writing from all sorts of people in the, in the weeks after he died. Um, and the common theme was that Bowie gave freedom in some way to people growing up. Um, whether it was, it was a, a, a gay kid in a, in a very conservative community who saw a man wearing a dress and, you know, singing a song called a John, I'm only dancing and realizing there was something out there or whether it was just, you know, your typical arty theater, you know, nerd kid in, a, in an environment where everybody is obsessed with football. And so this is a figure of culture and refinement and, and mystery. Or just, you know, um, somebody who seemed to be not stuck in a 
preconceived role because he changed so often his image. Um, if there, you know, whatever you needed, there's a version of him out there that kind of connected with you. And so I think Bowie's greatest legacy is sort of a, a, a guidebook to how to survive uh, in a world which is, which can you know beat you down pretty easily and which can very easily block off a lot of avenues early on in your life. And he's kind of there as a, you know, look, I did it too. And I was sort of a lower middle-class suburban kid from, you know, and look what I did. And obviously he was massively talented, very, you know, beautiful, you know, gifted in all kinds of ways. So not everybody can be a David Bowie, um, to put it mildly. But I think, you know, he kind of offers the, the hope that you can change, you can change things. And there's a song, an instrumental song called a new career in a new town on low, which is one of my favorite songs of his. Um, and just the kind of that title sums it up um, that if you're able to, if you're in a bad place, move, go somewhere else, do something else. That's kind of one of his great statements, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I had never really looked at I, See, Low is my favorite Bowie album. I just adore that album. Yeah. I always have. Um, I'd never really looked at that song that way, but but you're right. It does capture something fundamental about him so well, even just the title of that, that song. Yeah. Yeah. So what what are you working on right now, Chris? Um, I'm turning the book Rebel Rebel was like the first half of the blog. It goes up to station to station. And now I'm turning it into a second book, um, which will be the rest of the song. So it'll be a big book, but I'm hoping to finish that by next summer, I believe. Great. Well, I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Chris. It was a it was a real pleasure. Yes, nice talking to you also. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris O'Leary. And as I sit here today, listening to that conversation again, I'm, it's May 16th, and it wasn't that long ago that we lost Prince as well. And both of those guys, I mean, I'm sure you had a similar response if you're listening to this, but it's like you really can't believe that they're gone. And artists like that, it, it doesn't make sense that they're dead. You know, some people, they die, and it's like, okay, I kind of understand that. You know, like I think when, when uh, Ozzy Osbourne passes, not that I'm wishing that for any reason, but... When someone like that passes, it's like, okay, you know, they've had a long life and it kind of seems like it's been coming for a while. But Bowie and and Prince and these people, it just doesn't make sense. But at least we have the music. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Chris O'Leary and his very, very interesting work on Bowie, please go to travelsinmusic.com slash Bowie and you'll find links to his book, Rebel Rebel, and his Bowie blog and everything we talked about in today's, today's episode. So I highly recommend you check that out, travelsandmusic.com slash Bowie. And a quick reminder before I let you go that the best way to support this show is to go to iTunes and make sure you subscribe and leave a rating and review. I know I've said it a lot, but it's really, really important for new podcasts. So it would mean a lot to me if you could go on iTunes, subscribe and leave a rating and review. And above that, um, if you want even more, I don't know what to call them, bonus points, something like that. 
Please tell a friend. If you think they would dig this show, please pass it along. I'd appreciate that as well. So until next time, my name is Zachary Stockhill. Thank you, as always, for listening and for spending roughly a half an hour with me today. And as always, remember that life is short, so be sure to just enjoy the hell out of it because you never know how long it will last. Thanks for listening. Thank you.